Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Medical Grand Rounds. And, um, and welcome to you all. I um, uh, am very happy to um, introduce our, uh, the, the uh, person who will introduce our speaker today. This is a special Grand Rounds that's co-sponsored by the Department of Medicine and the MD-PhD program at the Geisel School of Medicine. And um, we're really fortunate to have one of the students in the program, Tamu Chidawanika, uh, here to introduce today's speaker. Tamu matriculated in the MD-PhD program in 2012. Her research activities at Geisel include the investigation of novel genes and pathways involved in stress-induced cytotoxicity as a result of protein misfolding and mediators of non-aptotic cell death pathways. Tamu, thank you for joining us. Thank you for that introduction. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Dr. Carl Nathan, our speaker, who's coming to us today from Wall Medical College, um, where he is the chair of the Microbiology and Immunology Department. He graduated from Harvard Medical School and went on to train in internal medicine and oncology at MGH and National Cancer Institute in Yale. His research demonstrates a steadfast commitment to understanding the immunology and biochemistry of host defense mechanisms and um, how these mechanisms inform therapeutic interventions. Among his significant contributions are discovering interferon gamma as a major macrophage activating factor, characterizing inducible nitric um, oxide synthase, and his most recent work on TB, which has laid the groundwork for innovative partnerships between academia and industry in an effort to resuscitate antibiotic discovery. Of his many honors and awards, he has been inducted into the National Academy of Medicine as well as the National Academy of Sciences for his pioneering work. And today he will be sharing with us his team's multidisciplinary approach to addressing the problems of antimicrobial resistance. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Nathan. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for the very nice introduction, Dr. Rothstein, Dr. Lacey, the MD-PhD students. It's a real honor to be invited to your very beautiful, I'm jealous, your beautiful medical center. Um, Tamu was the most recent member of my lab to enter an MD training program, and Professor Bradley Eric was the first MD-PhD student who trained in my lab, so it makes it especially meaningful for me to come and also to pay my respects to my closest scientific friend, Dr. Michael Sporn. So I'd like to talk about antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, today. Uh, this is a problem that came first to the attention of scientists and physicians, and from there into the business community's attention. So it's appeared on one of the, as a top topic at the World Economic Forum in Davos, for example. And from there to the attention of, of government leaders, uh, where it's um, about to come to the attention of all the heads of state who attend the UN General Assembly meeting on September 21st in New York. And as they say, uh, we cannot uh, afford to return to the pre-antibiotic era. This is a pretty alarming concept. 
What's the fuss all about? Where does this come from? I think one way to get a handle on this is to go back to the beginning. Uh, when I was in London not too long ago, I paid a pilgrimage to this site at St. Mary's Hospital. This is Fleming's laboratory. And I'm sure everybody remembers the story. He went away on vacation, left Staph aureus on agroplates out, and came back and found the mold uh, that had made a lytic uh, zone into the bacteria. So for the MD-PhD students, the lesson is not to have a laboratory as messy as this. <laughs> the lesson is when you make a mistake, try to get a Nobel Prize for it. <laughs> so he founded the antibiotic era, and we've assumed that it's here to stay. And it's really hard to imagine what it would be like without antibiotics. And I, I think psychologically, one way to appreciate this is to flip it and go back to how people felt when, when, uh, when Fleming's uh, when penicillin was purified and made available. So Fleming became a rock star, and he went around the world giving lectures, bringing samples of the mold with him. Uh, he was showered with flowers. People sang verses in his honor. Um, these little samples of mold on pieces of paper that he distributed were treated as, as, as uh, holy relics. Um, Penicillin was purified by Flory, Chain, and Heatley in 1942, and then uh, the so-called penicillin project of World War II got started. And first there were some tests limited to soldiers, and then a few clinical trials to try to figure out regimens and indications. And finally, by 1944, there was enough to treat all wounded Allied soldiers, and by 1945, enough to release to the public. Uh, and one of the first applications was a single injection to treat gonorrhea, disease, uh, you know, as, as you know, communicable disease that, if untreated, can cause infertility, arthritis, occasionally sepsis or death. Uh, so the, the, just enormous relief that greeted this. One of the first infants in the U.S. to be treated with penicillin to uh, treat pneumonia was me at uh, Columbia Babies Hospital at Columbia Presbyterian. Um, the, the success of this exponential expansion in the production of clinical grade material was inter, int, intimately tied with the birth of the modern pharmaceutical industry. For example, Pfizer created this technique of deep tank fermentation, and uh, th this helped the what were then chemical companies or vitamin companies uh, turn into the modern pharmaceutical industry. We'll come back to Nyseria, we'll come back to Pfizer in a minute. So I first became aware of this back in 2004, that the paradox that infectious diseases are the single leading cause of death for children under five, second leading cause of death overall, third leading cause of death in the industrialized world, fourth leading cause of death in hospitals, and yet uh, I know the graphic is very small. There's this uh, declining introduction of new chemical entities in the antimicrobial class <clears throat> with time at the same time that antimicrobial resistance is rising. So that's uh, two crossing lines. And then there's a convergence of some societies not in the world not having access to antibiotics, trying to enter the antibiotic era from a pre-antibiotic era, and other societies heading toward a post-antibiotic era, and coming, the rich and poor countries coming to share this uh, common lack. Um, 
So how did this happen? It's complicated. There are a lot of reasons, and some of them are economic. Perhaps we'll have time to talk about those in the discussion period. But uh, an example of what's going on is when Ian Reid, uh, a business person, took over Pfizer, now the world's largest drug company, one of his first decisions was to close down all of antibiotic R&D. The, the plant in Sandwich, England, which was devoted to that, gone, 5,600 jobs finished. Um, and it was a good business decision. Pfizer has done extremely well, has uh, a lot of cash to try to put somewhere else. So while, I, while the number of companies uh, researching antibiotics has plummeted, the incidence of methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, fluoroquinolone-resistant pseudomonas has been trending in the other direction. And it eventually did reach the level of the World Health Organization and from there uh, to the UN. And so uh, there are now about 10 uh, major bacterial pathogens, some of whose clinical isolates are now resistant to most antibiotics. And one of them, ironically, is Neisseria. The first major public uh, health uh, benefit from penicillin is now resistant to penicillin. And just six weeks ago, even the chancellor of the Exchequer of England chimed in about how serious a threat it is that untreatable gonorrhea is now greater than 5%, uh, which is where WHO says you shouldn't continue using the same therapy. And uh, can, uh, the modeling shows it can, it can double in as little as a year and keep doubling. Um, the Infectious Diseases Society of America has created a mnemonic for the escape pathogens that you can read here. Collectively, they cause an estimated uh, that is, isolates that are resistant to any available therapy cause an estimated 23,000 deaths a year in the U.S., about the same number in Europe. But the biggies, numerically, are at the bottom of the list. So salmonella, and uh, this is uh, non-typhoidal invasive salmonella, and Shigella, between them, somewhere around 1 to 1.5 million deaths a year. 95% or more in the developing world, many in children. And the disease I'd like to use for lesson purposes uh, has a lot to teach us uh, about antibiotics, mycobacterium tuberculosis. So on a vacation not too long ago in Norway, I was struck by this painting by Edvard Munch, and everybody remembers the scream. Uh, the scream was probably his sister, who's he remembers here dying of TB. His mother had already died of TB. In the room in the museum before this is another painter less well-known, almost the same painting. Uh, dying of TB was very common. Uh, was estimated to have killed more people in the last two centuries than, than uh, any other disease. It was the leading cause of death. About one death in four, sort of like what cancer is now. Um, Hope came when Koch discovered the cause of TB. Uh, there was a period where he, he had the, the so-called Koch phenomenon. You probably all remember from medical school. You have a TB-infected guinea pig. You inject it with the culture filtrate of TB, and there's necrosis in the lesions, so-called Koch phenomenon. Uh, when Koch reported this to the uh, government of Prussia that was funding him, they, they inter the, the ministers interpreted it as curative and announced that to the press. So these were banner headlines in all the world newspapers. People flocked to Berlin to get treated. And of course, it didn't work. It, in fact, it killed a few people. Koch was humiliated by that. So there was enormous uh, hope, and then it was dashed. 
And there was hope again when Albert Schatz, a uh, student of Selman Waxman, uh, they co-discovered streptomycin, the first drug effective against TB, another Nobel Prize. And Waxman actually thought the complete eradication of the disease was in sight. And I'd like to show you the evidence that made him think that it came from this trial. Um, this was the first randomized trial in medicine, randomized con controlled clinical trial. And the reason it was randomized between streptomycin and bed rest or bed rest was there wasn't enough streptomycin. So randomization was used to decide who would, would get it. And during the shaded period, uh, which is brief uh, of administration, everybody with TB seemed to get better. And that was the cause of optimism. But when the treatment stopped, uh, whether it stopped or not, in fact, uh, they then did almost no better than controls because they all had streptomycin-resistant TB at that point. So the failure of monotherapy led to the introduction, excuse me, of combination chemotherapy for the first time to the practice of medicine, and that was the same folks who then went on to a long series of trials, British, British Medical Council, uh, beginning with this one, streptomycin and paraminous salicylic acid. This clearly did better, than, than the patients did better than with streptomycin alone. And eventually this led to... Uh, eventually, this led to the contemporary four-drug therapy, uh, isoniazid, rifampinothambutol, and pyrazinamide that we now have. But that soon led to drug resistance. And here we have this terrible uh, remedy. It's not a treatment. It's a control mechanism. And it's barbed wire and quarantine. And the point about it is it doesn't work either to treat people with multi-drug resistant TB. The people have to get back to work, back to their families, can always find a way under or over a fence. And uh, so now we have the TB remaining the leading cause of death from a cure, curable infection. That's a, just to say those things in one sentence is some sort of societal indictment. It may even be the leading cause of death from a curable disease uh, at, at about a million and a half uh, deaths a year. Um, and, but it's becoming increasingly incurable. And this is a, a very chilling statistic, the five-year follow-up of patients with extensively drug-resistant TB in South Africa. You can read better than I can from this angle, but the worst part of this is giving up and sending people back to the community with uh, smear-positive TB, contagious disease that has uh, 50 to 80% mortality rate, and they're still infectious. So um, at this point, I think it's, you know, we, we've introduced that combination chemotherapy is curative, but it can fail too. And the fact that it's essential to treat this disease. And here, it's great. Uh, it, I found it personally very instructive to stop and think harder about why it needed combination chemotherapy. And I, first, I'll run through what I taught my students for a long time. And then here's another lesson for the MD-PhD <laughs> students. Uh, once my life quieted down to the point where uncharacteristically I could think for a few minutes about what I was teaching, I decided it's completely wrong. So we know it's essential for cure. This is empirically established. And uh, the regimen that works best at present is at least four drugs for two months and two of them for the next four months. And this has been conceptually rationalized. I'll, I'll just put it in formulaic terms. You have drugs numbers one through four, and the inverse of the product of the frequency of resistance to each drug should be greater than the number of viable bacteria, I'll call them colony-forming units, in the patient. It's very simple. 
Of course, we don't really know the number of CFU in the patient, but the best estimate I can find, or the best uh, report I can find in the literature is from George Canetti, uh, and he found a range between 10 to the 7th and 10 to the 9th per cavity. And I'm going to very generously attribute somewhere between 10 and 100 cavities, uh, for, for, well, actually between 10 and 1,000 cavities per day. I mean, that's absurd. But you'll see in a minute why it doesn't matter how I overinflate this number. Because if you plug in the frequencies of resistance, tricinizid, rifampinethan, butyl, and pyrazinamide, you get 10 to the 24. And that's way, way more than 10 to the 10th or 10 to the 9th or 10 to the 7th. In fact, if you just do this little game and calculate how many bacteria, what would 10 to the 24 TB look like? It would be um, about 6 million human biomass equivalents. So if one patient had that many bacteria, that person would be crushed to a grain of sand by the mass of the bacteria. So that, that can't be the explanation. There has to be something else. And in thinking about this, I've come up with uh, what I'll offer as the fact that we're, we, have, we actually are treating bacteria in multiple compartments and not every drug acts in every compartment. Now, what's a compartment? Uh, it can be, you know, something physical and visible to the uh, gross pathology. It can be which organs are infected. It can be what kind of pathology you have in a given organ. It can be an open cavity, a closed granuloma, a pneumonitic zone. Or it can be microanatomic, something you only see under the microscope. Uh, the bacteria, some of them are, in fact, extracellular, while others are intracellular. And they actually can infect mostly macrophages, but they're, they're found in other cells as well. Uh, or it can be subcellular. TB in a macrophage is initially in a phagosome, but just before the macrophage dies, it escapes into the cytosol. Drugs may distribute differently in these compartments. Or it can be a functional compartment. It can have to do with the replicative or metabolic state in which the organisms are found. So they can be replicating uh, rapidly the way we make them when we screen for drugs and class any uh, antibiotic screen against bacteria is done under those conditions in, in uh, conventional approaches in industry. Or they can be non-replicating, where their growth has been restricted by something. This can be a lack of carbon and nitrogen, phosphorus. It can be a lack of a micronutrient like iron. It can be suppressed by host immune chemistries. It can even be suppressed by sub-effective doses of another antibiotic. So basically, we're talking about two things here, bacteria in biophysically distinct locations or bacteria in physiologically distinct states. And in fact, in TB research, there's strong evidence for at least two of these being critical. And they are the, macro, the, 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 the distinctive pathologies and the replicative or metabolic niches. So the evidence for uh, the pathologies being important, I, I won't have time to illustrate, but it comes from work from uh, Veronique D'Artois at Rutgers and Brendan Prideau in her laboratory, and it involves positional imaging by mass spectroscopy. Sections are taken, you know, for, uh, in the most striking example, a patient with extensively drug-resistant TB is treated with everything as usual, then goes to the OR for lesion resection. Frozen sections are made, alternate sections are stained for H&E, and the, the in intervening sections are put on a uh, motorized stage, and mass spectrometry, the uh, laser evaporates the material at different pixels. And from the mass to charge ratio, you can tell exactly where the drug is and how much. 
And the answer is, some drug doesn't get into cavities, other drugs do. You, combination chemotherapy can be compartmental monotherapy. No wonder there's uh, emergence of drug resistance despite combination therapy. So I won't uh, focus on that. I'm going to focus on, on, uh, on, on this uh, by making the point that uh, a drug that accumulates in a given site needs to be effective against the TB in the replicative, or, or I can generalize to any bacterium, in, in the metabolic state that pertains at that site. And it's the conditions in a given site that, that, that dictate uh, what that state will be in the bacteria. So traditionally, the focus on antimicrobial resistance has been on heritable resistance, changes in the genome. And I know that's very familiar to everyone here, and I'm not going to tick off the, the, the mechanisms by which that occurs. But what I really want to focus on is that most bacteria also exhibit conditional, reversible AMR that does not involve changes to the genome. It's also called phenotypic tolerance. This was first described just two years after penicillin was purified. 1944, Joseph Bigger, reporting in Lancet, was studying Staph aureus, and he had a replicating population, treated it with penicillin, killed all but, it turned out, one in a million bacteria, washed the culture, let them grow up, did it again, got the same result. So that was not heritable resistance, something different about the one in a million. And now it's been described in many, many different bacteria, and we can generalize and say any way you can get heritable resistance but do it without a change in the genome is a way to uh, achieve this state in the minority of the bacteria. It can be epigenetic, transcriptional, translational, post-translational. And I'll give you two striking examples that have nothing to do with replicative state. Uh, they're both from TB. Uh, one was uh, from John McKinney's lab, published in Science. Isoniazid, INH, is a prodrug has to be activated by catalase encoded by the cat G gene. And they found that th there's stochastic uh, variation in the transcriptional expression of cat G. So at the moment that isoniazid is put on a population of bacteria, those which happen not to be expressing cat G are immune. They didn't activate the prodrug. And that's just stochastic. Who knows how, how that's controlled? Another striking example, so that's the, the, one of the first-line TB drugs. Here's the other first-line TB drug, rifampin. Uh, its target is RNA polymerase encoded by RPO subunit B. And TB has a way of mistranslating. The genome, the gene encoding RPOB can be fine, unlike heritable resistance to rifampin, which involves point mutations here. But in this case, the, there, are, there are no point mutations, but there's mistranslation. So that about 1 in 10 to the fifth cells has a variant at the protein level, not the genome level, that's resistant to rifampin. There are many such mechanisms. Now, in the same paper that Bigger wrote in 1944, most people who cite his paper don't read. It's very long. They don't read to the end. But in the end, he did some different experiments. He, he chilled the bacteria. He diluted them. He lowered the osmotic pressure. He acidified them, in, all in ways that didn't kill them. This just reversibly stopped the replication of all of them. And then the proportion that were phenotypically tolerant went from one in a million to one in one. 
a million-fold increase. They all became resistant until we reversed those conditions. So this is, I, I think, is worth distinguishing, and I'll tell you why I think that's important. I know it sounds academic to classify and divide, but uh, I think there's a clinical reason. So here's, uh, I, and I introduced this a couple of years ago. So here, most cells are not replicating. The large majority are tolerant to all antibiotics that were selected for their ability to kill replicating cells. And the way you can get there is, as Bigger did, uh, but I, I'll leave out cold and I'll leave out low tonicity because I don't think those are clinically relevant, but acidification, reactive nitrogen intermediates, reactive oxygen intermediates at sublethal levels, deprivation of oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, iron, or sublethal treatment with another antibiotic. And we don't, uh, we don't need to, this is speculative and we don't know the answer. We don't need to talk about mechanisms, but let's talk about implications for therapy. So if a given individual minority in a replicating cell, that's a, a minority in a replicating population, um, is tolerant to antibiotic number one for one reason, and a different cell is tolerant to antibiotic number two for its own reason, you can solve that by combining different drugs as long as they all reach the same site. That's a new addition to this idea based on D'Artois' work. But that won't work for drugs where, uh, for bacteria where the same individual bacteria is tolerating everything. There, that, there is no such solution. You have to actually come up with new kinds of drugs that kill non-replicating bacteria, of which there are exceptionally few. So to summarize, class one phenotypic tolerance is intrinsic, it spontaneously manifests, including under conditions that are permissive for growth. Class two is imposed on the bacteria by conditions that impair growth. And it's worse, it's more complicated because you can, you, you can and I think we must subdivide class two. Uh, so far I've just been talking about bacteria that will all resume growth as colony forming units once you reverse the conditions. But there's a, it, it's very common in, in, uh, in bacterial pathogenesis and particularly troublesome in TB. There's a, a population that doesn't grow again on agar. You think you've killed them you, or you think they're not there but they can kill you, and you can make them grow under other conditions. They, uh, Rita Colwell introduced the term viable but non-culturable, VBNC, but it's paradoxical because you can culture them often under uh, different, like limiting dilution and liquid. So we call them differentially detectable. It's the main topic of my lab right now, but not for this talk. But we need even more specialized kinds of drugs that can kill these bacteria, which predominate in the sputum of most treatment-naive patients with TB and are invisible not only to uh, colony-forming unit tests on agar, they're also not detected by uh, the midget or Bactec uh, liquid uh, growth indicator tubes. And so how are we going to overcome class two and uh, phenotypic uh, tolerance is it possible to find compounds that kill non-replicating bacteria and, and uh, achieve this goal? And the answer is absolutely it is. Uh, there are two different routes to that generally. One is through target-based approaches. That is, you have an enzyme and you have reason to think that bacteria use it to survive those stresses that block the replication but don't kill them. And you find an inhibitor of that enzyme and now the bacteria should succumb to those stresses. The other approach is a whole cell screen and this actually 
uh, didn't seem to be possible for a long time because if you deliberately put this bacteria into a state where they don't replicate and then throw a lot of compounds on them one at a time and ask if you kill them, how do you tell if you kill them? And it's, it's actually quite easy, although it's embarrassing how long it took us to think of it. You, you have to revert the conditions to growth supporting and see if they fail to recover. And so we've done a lot, we and others now have done lots of screening of these kinds. And I'll give you examples of compounds that kill uh, TB only when it's not replicating. But these are also compounds that only kill TB, nothing else that we've been able to test. The, the first example, and I think it's the first example at all, of a compound that can kill a, a bac bacterial pathogen only when it's not replicating and no matter how you make it not replicate, in contrast to metronidazole, which requires hypoxia. These are thioxothiazolidines, and they kill non-replicating TB if it's hypoxic, acidified, starved, in mammalian cell culture medium, subjected to nitrosative stress, or inside a macrophage, and otherwise they don't touch it. And it turns out the target is dihydrolipoamide acyltransferase, and it's a component of uh, an element of the tricarboxylic acid or Krebs cycle. And that same protein is part of a multi-enzyme complex that breaks down peroxynitrite or peroxides. Another example, in, uh, oxothiazolones that kill TB when it's starved or under nitrosative stress. And the target is the proteasome that we discovered TB to have, all the bacteria are not supposed to have them. And the third example that may be the, the, the only example on this slide that has clinical potential for because of the properties of the pharmacologic properties are beta-lactams. Remarkable, unusual beta-lactams in the sense that they only kill TB, they only kill it when it's not replicating. So these are examples of target-based and whole cell screening, and I want to acknowledge Tamu's role in this paper. Uh, she was uh, a fantastic contributor to this study. But what I really want to highlight is how bizarre it is to find enzymes like this on a list of targets of antimicrobial molecules. There's a lesson here, and let's try to dive into the lesson. So what are the known targets of conventional antimicrobial molecules? As Chris Walsh summarized them a couple of years ago there, and I put them in a little box because I think they reflect how success turns into dogma, and dogma becomes a constraint on thinking. So very successful. The birth of the pharmaceutical industry, the golden age, gave us synthesis, inhibitors of the synthesis of four things, nucleic acids, proteins, cell walls, or folate. And there, there's daptomycin that disrupts membranes, but we don't have a specific molecular target, so I'll leave it off this list. But if we ask the question, what is potential target space? How would you map it? What are the coordinates of it? I think you'd put this, and forgive my crude art, but this is supposed to be three-dimensional axes. I think you'd put this box on an axis called molecular processes, but once you articulate it that way, you can ask about other molecular processes. Um, there can be the induction or synthesis or release of virulence factors, energy generation, ion gradients, transport, signaling, repair, degradation, like the proteus, excuse me, the proteasome or sequestration, which is our latest topic. 
Um, but there's another axis. That's the point. You, you can think of this much more broadly. What are the bacterial subpopulations you're targeting? Well, what's easy to work on are planktonic, that is, single-cell bacteria that are replicating. The faster they replicate, the quicker you get your answer. And it's also based on a concept that the human is a walking bag of rich growth media in which nothing is lacking. Bacteria divide as quickly as they can. And those are the conditions you want to imitate in your in vitro screen. But in fact, some of the bacteria are not replicating in almost every infectious disease. Uh, some are in biofilm instead of uh, being uh, in single cell culture. And then finally, there's the whole host pathogen interaction access. So the traditional thinking in antibiotic development is the immune system's trying to kill bacteria. The pharmacologist is trying to kill bacteria. We're both on the same team. So we're working together, and we don't have to think about it any further. Unfortunately, this indifference uh, to what's actually going on can mask that there's an antagonism. So an immune system that succeeds in impairing the replication of bacteria without sterilizing them makes them resistant to antibiotics that only kill replicating bacteria. So we can ignore that, or we can think about it. We can try to uh, mimic immunity or boost immunity, or at least reduce pathology. Or a new line of thinking is don't even target the bacteria, because they're only going to develop resistance if they didn't already. Target something in the host that the bacteria require to be pathogenic and that the host can temporarily do without, so-called host-directed therapy. So in this oval is where the pharmaceutical industry has worked. And this other space has been ignored. And I think calling attention to these other targets is the kind of other ways of thinking is the kind of contribution that the academic community can bring to the professional drug development community. So um, I'm going to put my own title on a quote from David Payne and David Pompliano's uh, remarkably candid paper of a couple of years ago summarizing what happened at GSK, which tried really hard to make antibiotics, asking the same question almost the same way for 80 years. Uh, the answers are the same. It's hard to find new answers. So they point out it's, um, it's an important process. Um, the threats are, are huge, and yet most companies are dropping out. And the fact remains that they can do better in other areas, and they're under intense competitive business pressure to show those very high returns that they're used to. And what people may not realize is they did try, and they failed, and this failure was scientific. And they give an example of how they did this. Um, in this particular example, I think the uh, it's not, not an example, it's an effort over many years. I, the key points are they required that the target be only in bacteria, not in human cells. But that's hypocritical because you know, uh, ribosome inhibitors, RNA, uh, RNA polymerase inhibitors, uh, gyrase inhibitors, these are all targets that we share, like the proteasome. But you can find bacteria-specific versions of them. Another requirement was they be broad spectrum. And that may be an outdated requirement. If we had point-of-care pre-prescription diagnostics, we wouldn't need broad spectrum so often. But in, in the event, they, they failed. And they just couldn't throw money at this forever without succeeding, so they stopped. So uh, I'd like to wrap up with what I think the key lessons are on two fronts, biology and policy, because I, I don't think we can afford to separate them any longer. Antimicrobial resistance can be genetic. 
but it can also be phenotypic. They're both clinically significant. And the different types call for different therapeutic approaches. The spread of genetic antimicrobial resistance, it's pretty easy, you call it, although it's hard to achieve. It calls for new antimicrobials that act on replicating bacteria, and this is where industry has largely failed in the last 20 years. But the phenotypic antimicrobial resistance of a small proportion of bacteria in a replicating population could be overcome if we could combine individually effective antibiotics. But it, the phenotypic antimicrobial resistance of a population whose replication has been halted requires new kinds of drugs, drugs that kill, kill extensively bacteria that are not replicating. Rifampin does kill non-replicating TB, but only about one and a half logs. And then it plateaus. And most of that, you can show whether or not you include charcoal in your agar. Most of that is carryover of rifampin attached to the bacteria that kill them when they try to resume replication under growth permissive conditions. So actually, it kills very little. And there is nothing else that really kills non-replicating TB except pyrazinamide at low pH. So in terms of policy, we need partnerships that bring science from the academic and biotech sectors together with the resources and expertise and experience of pharmaceutical companies. We're going to need leadership, uh, a global level of surveillance of use and resistance, and to oversee a system of reward uh, through an effective global structure. And, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, reward for antibiotic development and also a system of conservation. In terms of reward, uh, there's a consensus now. This sounds radical, but uh, I'll explain in a minute where it's coming from, not from scientists, but from business people themselves, that we need economic models that delink rewards from sales, such as market entry rewards. Because otherwise, we have this paradox. If you're making your money from volume of sales and the government wants you and the physicians want you to conserve, and whether you conserve or not, your product is going to run out due to resistance even before your patent expires. The best thing you can do is sell it to agribusiness and let tons be put on uh, pigs and chickens, sprayed on orchards, dumped into fish farms. And the consequences are obvious. Uh, and that brings me to the next point, conservation through prioritization of medical use. To husband antibiotics, we need to restrict use to the practice of human and veterinary medicine, that is, treating sick animals, not growth promotion in healthy animals that take a few pounds per, uh, pennies per pound off the cost of production. We need conservation through prescription tailored to diagnosis. The insistence on broad-spectrum antibiotics is tied with the lack of pre-prescription diagnostics, but the profit that's greater from broad spectrum when your volume of sales is driving a return versus narrow spectrum is what has de-incentivized or even suppressed the development of point-of-care diagnostics. We need point-of-care diagnostics for viral infections. The vast majority of antibiotic prescriptions in most countries in the, uh, where doctors write prescriptions, which is not most countries, is for viral infections. Um, there's a paper in Press and Cell from Jim Collins at MGH. Uh, it's a fascinating new rapid point-of-care technique for Zika diagnosis. I've urged him to apply it to real virus, Coxsackie virus. That would really, really be helpful. It's a paper test. takes a few minutes. We need conservation through controlled access to restrict misuse. Healthcare facilities need stewardship programs. There are a lot of countries where the uh, prescriber is the purveyor. 
And this is a, an incentive that needs to change. There are a lot of countries where antibiotics are freely available over the counter. We need, a, we need a much renewed effort in prevention because all these other efforts are not likely to bring us where we need to be quickly enough. We need to go back to sanitation, surveillance, infection control, expansion of vaccination, and we need backup plans, adjunctive approaches. Uh, therapeutic antibodies, bacteriophage therapy that had a brief uh, pre-World War II uh, heyday, antivirulence agents, and even host-directed therapies. So anyone who's interested in reading, there's an enormous literature, but I think you can shortcut it. You can start at the beginning, reading the Nobel Address by Alexander Fleming, who not only introduced antibiotics, but introduced the warning of what would happen when someone undertreated themselves developed, uh, his, in his example, it was uh, uh, strep uh, that became resistant, passed it to his wife in, in the example we gave, and then she was, couldn't be treated and died. And he said, who's to blame? So antibiotics are, I, I'm, I'm afraid to say unique. I'll say it, and then you can tell me how I'm wrong, and I'll, I'll learn. Unique among drugs in the following sense. They cure people in the strict sense of the term, when you stop the therapy, the patient, the disease is completely gone. It's different than insulin. And in the second sense, the drug, the use of the drug impacts many people besides the person taking it. What other drug can you say that? The class of drugs. Uh, so he, he adumbrated that. And then we'll leap forward to the President's National Action Plan for Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria. Terrific plan, if it were funded. And an absolutely uh, superb study. And this is from uh, a British panel commissioned by David Cameron. The person chosen to lead it, who's now the Minister of Finance, is named Lord Jim O'Neill. And when he was called to uh, 18 months ago to begin this review, he had just stepped down as the chief economist in Europe for Goldman Sachs. And that was an inspired, he didn't know anything about the topic, and that was an inspired choice because this isn't scientists or doctors asking for more money. This is an economist predicting the impact on the global economy from not dealing with this, pointing out that dealing with it, the way he outlines, will cost a, a trivial fraction of either what would be lost or what is now spent on global health care, and then advancing every section of his report has a concluding section, what will it cost? And then the end of the report is how will we pay for it? And uh, it's very similar to what I've listed before, uh, but I, I urge you to read it. And it concludes with the thought that it's the combination of the UN and the G20 that um, need to come together to devise an international structure for completely rethinking antibiotics as a public good. And one of his ideas is that you can't practice other forms of medicine, uh, including surgery, uh, as well as we are used to without antibiotics. So if you're a drug company or a medical device company and you're letting someone else do the antibiotic development for you, you're just taking a free ride. So one of his ideas is play or pay. Do antibiotic research or pay a, f a fee into a fund that will support others to do it. He's talking about the drug companies. <laughs> and another idea is uh, delinking rewards from sales through the market entry awards. 
So I just want to close with this quote from a book published by Dean uh, Sally Davis, who's the chief medical officer of England. And I met her on Monday at one of the UN briefings getting ready for the General Assembly. She's also a foreign member of the US National Academy of Sciences. And she likens it to climate change in the sense that we're victims of our own technological success. The science is complicated but compelling. The international policies are fraught with issues of fairness. That is, some countries are yet to enter the antibiotic era fully. Others are entering the post-antibiotic era. And there's a sense of helplessness, but we have to do something about it. So thank you very much in, in anticipation of your questions and discussion. And I just want to acknowledge uh, funding from NIH Gates Foundation and the Milstein program. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, giving us a talk that I think did help us to rethink the dogma and that connected the lab to global politics, which, it, which, which is tough to do, but I think we all really uh, saw that connection. Um, I'm sure there are many questions. Anybody with a question to start us out? Yeah. So it's interesting, the idea of uh, targeting the host mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to try and limit factors which bacteria need to replicate. Um, but the alternative approach might be to target the in the opposite direction and stimulate replication. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that, that, that's a, a very thoughtful suggestion. In, in the HIV field, the same ideas come forward. You know, wake up the uh, integrated virus and then hammer it with heart. And I don't think it, it worked too well. Um, there was a, an effort to try that in TB by giving anti-TNF. So as, as people know, uh, patients with uh, autoimmune diseases or inflammatory diseases who are treated with anti-TNF agents or anti-TNF receptor agents are at risk for reactivation of TB, and that led to that intervention. And it, it didn't seem to work any better, um, and it does make people nervous that it might be harmful, so it hasn't progressed. But I think it's a very thoughtful idea. Any questions? Yes. Well, Carl, um, like, the, like the true Jedi Knight that you are, you see the connectedness of things. Um, and uh, and the similarities, uh, uh, the, sort of the, the replay is, uh, of, of things. I'm not going to ask you about glutathione, but, <laughs> but you are an oncologist, and, and I just keep getting struck by the, the idea of stem cells um, and uh, as as these these uh, phenotypic um, resistant uh, working. Uh, come back to bite you kind of yeah. entities. Um, can we get you back into the oncology clinic for a moment and think about how are there corollaries here that we see for well, that's another very insightful question. I'd love to come back to. I mean, my whole this is for me. This is all a detour. Come back to cancer with some some weapons. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think the um, phenotypically tolerant population of non-replicating, or as I think of them in some cases deeply non-replicating, dormant uh, bacteria that are not, not only hard to kill but hard to detect, has a lot of potential to uh, teach us something about cancer stem cells. Or other, they may not all be stem cells, but cells that have come out of cycle 
and uh, are waiting for a better time to, or a more opportune op uh, chance to, to replicate and are resistant to uh, the chemotherapy we have. So I think, the, to me, the key will be to find a lot of, the reason I'm working on bacterial disease because it's faster, the genetics are easier. But I, I do think these are evolved messages, you know, lessons about biology in the theater where immunity and uh, defense, host defense evolve, and we can bring them back to cancer, which I don't think were the drivers of host immune reactions. So if we have a whole panel of compounds that can kill these differently, deeply non-replicating bacteria, what are their targets? What are the pathways? What are the corresponding or analogous pathways in host cells? How can we target those? I, I actually, that's exactly where I'd like to go, or people in the next generation can go. It won't be me. So I actually have a question. Sorry, Peter, I'll get you to this. Um, and this is a, a, on the other end of the spectrum. So you, you mentioned um, two of the important um, tasks that we need to think about are leadership at the uh, global level for surveillance um, of use of antibiotics mm -hmm. and um, improved diagnostics and tailoring treatment based on diagnostics. And I think for countries that are entering the antibiotic era and now have access to antibiotics but have very limited diagnostic capacities, this is a real challenge. They, um, the, the, the impetus to treat patients empirically with tools that they finally have mm -hmm. um, is there. And, and I think you know, driving resistance not just to TB but to H. pylori and uh, typhoid and many, many other infections. So. Um, uh, how do we get there at a, to, to find not just getting antibiotics to the right place, but all of the diagnostics? Uh, well, you're, you're right. It's, it's absolutely daunting. And I, I, I think, it, again, it's very similar to the climate change argument. And so if I turn to that, I mean, a, a country that's just developing an industrialized base need not go through coal and you know, uh, gas powered. It can go directly to clean. So the, the, um, not every country has to recapitulate the development path of the ones that came before them. They can take advantage of the latest technology. So to me, the only way to solve that very demanding problem is new technology that's scaled, that's designed for the setting you describe. So point of care, low cost, you know, uh, does not require cold, uh, ideally doesn't need electricity either, or not often. And it's amazing what people are coming up with when they're asked to, to develop that. Can you imagine microscopes made of paper? They exist, developed by a team of students at Stanford. Um, little paper chips that you can tell right away, uh, you know, whether somebody has a certain liver enzyme elevation. So I, I think there, it's creativity it's gonna, is, is what it takes. And it's um, defining the problem for the reality on the ground is the challenge. Great. Thank you. Peter. In your list of compounds that, that might target quiet cells, you mentioned that none of them, maybe the beta lactams, are really ready, ready to talk about in terms of actual drugs. Right. Can you say some more? Like, where, where is that? Like, are we 20 years from any of those things? 
somewhere? How would you predict the, that those, those pathways development? Well, that's a great question and a painful one. Um, so when a lab like mine comes up with a compound like thioxothiazolidines, it's a learning curve to realize how many ways they would fail the test for being a drug. You know, they're not soluble, they're too reactive, they're unstable, I mean, it's just a disaster. So th th these are things that I never thought about as a biochemically oriented immunologist. The beta-lactams have promise for obvious reasons. You know, they're the grandfather of, you know, there are just so many of them that have been so successful. So I have more hope there. Um, we took this evidence to the Gates Foundation TB drug accelerator, and I have to say we had to take it to them at every semi-annual meeting for two years. But they finally adopted it as a, an integrated program. So we've now screened... Um, 1,370 beta-lactams from Sanofi, 1,300 from GlaxoSmithKline. We found hundreds that are active on TB. Some are only on, active on non-replicating, some on replicating, but best of all, what we call dual actives, active on TB in both sets of conditions. We have 4,000 more that just arrived from Sanofi. Uh, Merck uh, screened 500. Um, and I'm sorry, they found 500 when they did a screen and uh, Lily a similar number. These are all coming to Cornell to be compared head to head. So there I have real hope. That's just one class. Going to need more. Mike? Carl, would you like to comment on another uh, long-standing interest of yours, uh, namely the potential role of not-for-profit pharmaceutical companies in helping with this problem? Yeah, I, uh, I've sort of given up on not-for-profit companies in favor of companies working on a not-for-profit basis, but who make money elsewhere, because otherwise they're not going to exist. <laughs> Somebody has to pay for it. But that, that's made great progress. So I just referred to the TB drug accelerator, and that's an example. Uh, these, these companies are all working together. They, they, they're not allowed in unless they, to the club. And Bill Gates has done a great job creating the sense that this is a desirable activity for companies, even though it's not in their financial interest. Um, so some of them are quite bitter that they can't join the club. But the, to get in, they have to agree to global access provisions, which means publishing everything and making products available affordable to those in need, including in least developed countries and the public markets in those countries, which means basically a cost. So it isn't clear how that's as, as so the compounds in that, leaving out the beta-lactams, there, there are a few other compounds that are coming along that look really, really promising, including new oxazolidinones that are way less toxic than linezolid because they don't inhibit mitochondrial um, protein synthesis. And it isn't quite clear yet who's going to pay for their development or the clinical trials. It will probably be the Gates Foundation. And the companies will probably act like contract research organizations getting paid for their services. Um, another example is the Open Lab, uh, as it's called. It's at a campus of GlaxoSmithKline outside Madrid. And everyone here is welcome to use it. Uh, so you apply. You, an academic, apply, uh, and you get a, a grant that covers your costs of working there for six months to a year. And you can screen the corporate compound collection, collaborate with scientists. The, the university and the company co-own the product. The university has to agree to these same provisions I just mentioned. The chief reason that the grants are not approved is the university doesn't like the idea of not making money. Um, 
I could mention certain universities and cities not far from here where I landed at an airport named Logan that, uh, <laughs> that don't like that provision. It's made it very difficult to work with them. But um, that, that's going very well. There are at least two new TB drugs coming out of that, as well as drugs for malaria and leishmaniasis. Is there anything to learn from the successful regimes that we have that activation of latent TB? Yeah, that's another great question. It's really confusing why isoniza does prevent activation of latent TB since it has no effect on non-replicating bacteria. And uh, there are people just hand-waving answers to that paradox. Um, one is that if you wait long enough, it has some action. And the other is that the bacteria are largely non-replicating, but every once in a while a scout bacterium will stick its head up, start replicating, and see if it's time to cause reactivation, at which point it'll get slammed. So it's sort of a whack-a-mole theory that after six or nine months, you've killed everybody. I don't know. It's, a, it's, it's mysterious. Dave. Thanks for a Yeah, it's a great question as well. So it's, it's actually 80% of antibiotic tonnage goes into agribusiness. Um, I think the answer may not, I mean, you've, you've assumed the answer comes from legislation, and I think you're right. The lobbying power makes that very unlikely. There's been some um, progress at the FDA, but it's you know voluntary and it's just window dressing. I, I don't think that's where it's going to come from. I think it's going to come from consumers. And the evidence that's growing that the antibiotics we eat in our food because of this practice changes our microbiome and, can, and you can show you treat mice with food that has those level of antibiotics changes their microbiome. That, that microbiome extracts something like 20% more calories from the same food and the mice get obese. The idea that this may have something to do with the obesity epidemic, with perhaps the allergy and asthma epidemic, is beginning to spread in the public attention. And as a consequence, firms like Purdue, and um, I'm not sure it's McDonald's, I may be misremembering, but some of the other big firms have said they will stop using antibiotics in developing their products by 2018. So I, and they've gotten a lot of favorable press from that, and I think that's where it's going to come from. The public has to demand these things. In the U.S., at least, legislators are not going to lead. Other questions? Great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Actually, would you push the push?